Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alter Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that in mind, I would like to welcome you back to our ambulatory series. And today I would like to go over some of the commonly encountered dermatological lesions. Dermatology is not easy and requires lots of practice. Just when you think you've mastered a particular rash or skin growth, you realize it's much more complicated. While you may not be a dermatology expert by the end of this episode, I hope this information will solidify some of the common associations between systemic diseases and their dermatological presentations, and some diagnostic patterns for lesions you may see in primary care. The diagnosis of skin lesion relies heavily on visualization, but let's not skip history taking as it can clue you into some diagnoses that you may otherwise miss. When seeing a patient for a skin lesion, it is important to collect history of primary skin conditions, systemic disease, travel history, medications or household products, and social history. If patient has a known dermatological condition, the new lesion could be an exacerbation of the underlying disease. Similarly, some of the systemic diseases may present with skin symptoms, which we will discuss in a little bit. Travel history becomes important because fungal infections vary regionally. Insect bites can also be associated with specific geographic areas. For example, early Lyme disease carried by ticks in the northeastern United States can present with erythema migrans. Make sure to get a good history on patients' medications and household products. A new chemical in soap, lotion, or detergent could be responsible for skin irritation. It is important to be familiar with medication-induced skin eruptions and be able to recognize them, but this is beyond the scope of our discussion for today. With history out of the way, time to focus on physical exam. You will likely be starting with a broad differential diagnosis and have to work your way down the list. One of the ways to narrow down the differential is to characterize the appearance and location of the lesion. For example, psoriasis usually affects extensor surfaces, and atopic dermatitis usually affects flexor surfaces. Palms and soles are often spared by diffuse rashes, but there are a few rashes that extend to palms and soles which are important to remember. Some of them are syphilis, tinea, scabies, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and erythema multiforme. While psoriasis is known to affect extensor surfaces, it can also affect nails, palms, and soles, as well as intertriginous areas, such as in case of inverse psoriasis, for example. Scalp is known to be affected in seborrheic dermatitis, more specifically near ears, eyebrows, and nasolabial folds. Remember that an acute onset of diffuse seborrheic dermatitis is a reason to be concerned and look for an HIV infection malignancy, or Parkinson's disease. Progression of the rash over time is important to note as well. Lesions may coalesce, spread distally or centrifugally, and change in color. Pteriasis rosea often starts as a single erythematous lesion with scale on the trunk or proximal upper extremity, 
but over weeks can spread in Christmas tree pattern. Erythema multiforme spreads centripetally, forming target lesions. Shape of the rash could be a helpful clue as well. For example, if the lesions are linear, you should be thinking of scabies, contact dermatitis, such as poison ivy, or scratching. Annular lesions are more common with psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and fungal infections. Presence of a scale can be seen in fungal infections, psoriasis, psoriasis rosea, as well as many other rashes. Scale can also be used in differentiating tinea from granuloma annularia, for example. While the two lesions may have similar appearance, granuloma annulari will have firm, shiny papules and have little to no scale. Granuloma annulari often occurs on the dorsum of hands and feet and can be associated with diabetes or hyperlipidemia. These lesions are benign and usually resolve on their own. There are other signs that could clue you to the right diagnosis such as Kovner phenomenon, which refers to lesions that originated from a trauma site. This can be seen as psoriasis and lichen planus. Auspitz sign refers to point bleeding after a scale is removed. This sign can be positive in patients with psoriasis, but it is important to note that it has low sensitivity and specificity. Pruritus is frequently seen in psoriasis, tinea, and atopic dermatitis, but is rare in seborrheic dermatitis, syphilis, and viral anxanthems. And of course, if your patient has systemic symptoms such as fever, you should investigate for a systemic process. And with that, let's open discussion on cutaneous manifestations of systemic disease. This is something that is frequently tested on exams and we all should know well. Let's start with lupus erythematosus. Lupus-specific skin disease can be divided into three categories. Acute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, and chronic cutaneous lupus erythematosus. Classic malar rash is characteristic of an acute cutaneous lupus erythematosus. However, it can also manifest as a maculopapular variant that is photosensitive and distributed over chest and upper back. Subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus can present with annular photosensitive plaques on the back and chest. Discoid lupus is a type of chronic cutaneous lupus erythematosus. Cutaneous lupus can be distinguished from dermatomyositis by sparing of knuckles and upper eyelids. The heliotrope rash and gotron papules are pathognomonic for dermatomyositis. Scleroderma has its dermatological presentations too. Skin tightening, especially of hands and perioral area, can be seen with diffuse systemic sclerosis. Raynaud's phenomenon and periungal capillary changes are common as well and usually precede skin changes. Localized scleroderma, also known as morphia, can present with violet plaques and progress to sclerotic circumscribed plaques. This type of scleroderma is not associated with a systemic disease. Small vessel vasculitis can present with palpable purpura or petechia, so workup for systemic vasculitis, autoimmune disease, cryoglobulinemia, drugs, and infective endocarditis needs to be completed. Medium vessel vasculitis can present with tender nodules on the legs and lividoreticularis. Cryoglobulinemia can present as a combination of both small and medium vessel vasculitis. 
Patients with end-stage renal disease are at risk for calciphylaxis and nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Let's break this down. Calciphylaxis lesions come from dermovascular calcifications and subsequent tissue necrosis in patients with severe end-stage renal disease and a high calcium to phosphorus product. Nephrogenic systemic fibrosis can occur in patients with end-stage kidney disease who have been exposed to gadolinium. It can present with symmetrical fibrotic indurated papules plugs most commonly located on the legs, mid-thighs, and upper arms. Gastrointestinal diseases have their dermatological manifestations as well. Inflammatory bowel disease has a well-known association with erythema nodosum and pyoderma gangrenosum. If your patient has one of these lesions and no known history of gastrointestinal pathology, you should investigate for inflammatory bowel disease. Pyoderma gangrenosum presents as a tender papule that develops into an ulcer with violaceous rim and rolled borders. Surgical debridement should be avoided to prevent pathology. Systemic steroids should be tried instead, along with controlling the underlying systemic disease. Dermatitis herpetiformis is a neutrophilic dermatosis caused by IgA antibody deposition. Patients will have intensely pruritic papules that are fragile and leave erosions when scratched. Dermatitis herpetiformis has an association with celiac disease. This can be diagnosed by a skin biopsy demonstrating neutrophils in a dermal papilla. Another condition we should talk about is porphyria cutanea tarda, which presents with skin fragility on sun-exposed areas, most frequently dorsal hands. The pathophysiology of it is related to an acquired defect of hepatic uroporphinogen decarboxylase enzyme, leading to accumulation of porphyrinogens. Porphyria cutanea tarda has an association with chronic hepatitis C infection, alcohol-induced liver damage, and hemochromatosis. Now let's talk about endocrinological disorders and skin lesions frequently associated with them. Acanthosis nigricans, necrobiosis lipotica, and pretibial nexedema. Let's talk about each of them separately. Acanthosis nigricans is velvety gray to brown thickening of skin in the intertriginous folds and neck and has a well-known association with diabetes and malignancy. Necrobiosis lipotica is a well-demarcated yellow to brown oval plaques with central atrophy and telangiectasias. Lesions are typically seen on the pretibial areas, and patients who develop these lesions should be screened for diabetes. Perderange skin changes on the pretibial area are concerning for a pretibial myxedema associated with autoimmune thyroid disease, particularly Graves' disease. Interestingly, controlling thyroid disease does not lead to resolution of myxedema. We have a few more conditions to go over, so bear with me. Sweet syndrome, also known as acute febrile neutrophilic dermatosis, can present with fever, neutrophilia, a dense dermal infiltrate on histology, and painful edematous red to violaceous papules, most commonly on face, neck, and extremities. Diagnostic criteria are such that patients should respond to oral steroids and have infection ruled out. Typically, sweet syndrome follows an upper respiratory infection or a gastrointestinal infection, or it can also develop in the setting of a myelodysplastic syndrome. 
Now let's talk about amyloidosis. Amyloidosis can have skin manifestations in 30 to 40% of cases and can include waxy appearance, easy bruising, pinch purpura, discoloration around eyes, also known as vercunis, yellow waxy papules, and plaques in periorbital locations. Diagnosis can be made by immunofixation studies. As we have discussed previously, acute onset of pruritus, atopic dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, and psoriasis that is severe should prompt testing for HIV or AIDS. Lastly, Lofgren syndrome that consists of erythema nodosum, arthritis, and hilar lymphadenopathy is so specific for sarcoidosis that the biopsy is not required to confirm this diagnosis. That wraps up our discussion on the common skin lesions and dermatological presentations of systemic disease. While this was a bird's eye view, I hope this information will help you keep your differentials broad, collect good history, be able to characterize skin lesions, and make necessary connections to systemic diseases when necessary. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in our next episode.